0: It was on May 26, 1637. None of us in this room were around back then. The sun rose in what is now Connecticut. And and if you could do me a favor this morning, if you're a person who closes your eyes to imagine, go ahead and do that. If you're a person who just, you know, just wants to hear the story and you can imagine, but what I want you to do is I want you to see this image with your mind's eye. I want you to hear these words. As I read them, I want you to see these words as I read them, okay? So whatever that looks like for you, if you close your eyes, if you just need to, you know, just kind of daydream for a second, hear this. The sun rose in what is now Connecticut, and Captain John Mason and an army of English settlers attacked the Pequot village. And with the help of warring tribes, they set fire to the village and killed all of those trying to escape. People who were trying to avoid the fire, women and children and men, anybody inside the village, would try to climb over the walls and they wouldn't get very far before they were shot by John Mason's men. The event became known as the Mystic Massacre. It took the lives of every single person that was in that village, including women and children. There was a man named John Underhill. John Underhill was a part of the Mystic Massacre. He was one of the settlers who fired those guns. And he recounted his involvement in this event. And I want you to hear what he had to say. He's reflecting on this and he says, Down fell men, women, and children. Should not Christians have more mercy... And compassion. Sometimes the Scripture declareth, "Women and children must perish with their parents." We had sufficient light from the Word of God for our proceedings. It's gonna have a little tension right here. All right, what do I always ask you to do? Lean into it. Can I just read that last part again? What, what what, what, John Underhill had to say? Listen, these are his words. Sometimes the scripture declareth women and children must perish with their parents. We had sufficient light from the word of God for our proceedings. In other words, John Underhill felt uncomfortable with what was happening at that village. Just like you and I feel uncomfortable when we read about it. And we feel uncomfortable for a lot of reasons, and one of those reasons, if we are Christians, as we read those words, we say, that doesn't seem to be a lot like Jesus. But John Underhill felt that he could justify it with the Bible. And that sounds crazy, right? How, how, could, how could anybody in their right minds justify genocide? How could they use the Bible to do it? And here is the thing that I'm going to be really clear about, and it's hard to be really clear about. Their justification comes from the Bible, just as John Underhill claimed. And if you turn to the first few books in the Old Testament, you'll find it. The books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, they tell the story of what happened after the death of Moses. And a man named Joshua assumed control of the Israelite people as they gathered on the border of what we call the Promised Land. And they had moved from a place of deliverance in Egypt to now conquest of the Promised Land. And the conquest stories are what we find here. The conquest stories are what we find at the beginning of this book of Joshua. Now, one of those stories that's found in the Bible is a story about a city called Jericho. Jericho was controlled by a local tribe, a group of tribes that are collectively known as the Canaanites. And maybe if you grew up in church, you've heard the story of the battle of Jericho and you heard it in song form. Maybe you've heard it as the Veggie Tales sing it, And it sounds a lot sweeter than what actually happened in the story. Rather than just attack this city, Joshua and the Israelites and his army, they march around this city. They march around it seven times, and then they blow these horns very loud. And the walls, as the veggie tales tell us, come crumbling down. (laughs) And... You read it, and at first you sort of go, yeah, I read that as a kid. You know, that was a great story. And then you start to read it again as an adult, and you go, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with this story. See, here's, here's the thing. Thanksgiving begins to take on different notes when you think about the Trail of Tears or when you hear about the story of Captain John Mason in the Pequot Village. That song about the walls being torn down at the walls of Jericho takes on a whole new feel when you read the verses at the very end of the story. So listen to Joshua 6, 20 through 21, that tells us what happened after the walls came down. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took The city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it men, women, young, and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Now it is clear what is happening in these verses. It could not be any clearer. This is what is called genocide. You probably didn't think you were going to come to church today and talk about genocide. And I realize we wish that we could talk about things that maybe were a little bit brighter, a little more uplifting today, right? That would be welcome. Stick with me. We will get there. But I want you to stay with me for a minute as we talk about this because I have personally been on a journey with this. I have been on a journey with this because what I asked you to do with scripture is what I have been doing for the past couple years. That rather than run away from texts that make you feel uncomfortable make you want to throw the Bible out the window or make you want to ignore the text, I want you to lean into the tension and say, I have to understand why this is here. What is going on with this? What is happening here? Is there anything that I can learn from what's taking place here? Because here's, here's the tension that normally plays out with this, and, and maybe this is what you're feeling today. Some people, read what's happening here, they accept it. And they say, well, this is just one of those areas where we're not supposed to question things, that we just accept that apparently God ordered genocide and this was okay, it was a certain time, and we do all these sort of things to try to justify and understand what's happening. So some people just accept it. For other people, the tension becomes unmanageable. They say, I can't do this anymore, this isn't right, this is wrong, this isn't the way things are supposed to be, and they say, I either have to get rid of the Bible, or I have to get rid of God, or I, have to, I just have to, I can't do it anymore, I'll just get rid of this. And they lose their faith, and they say, I'm done. If this is God, I'm done. For others, they ignore these passages. And they just say, well, they don't, you know, they just pretend they don't exist, and they just try to manage And if I'm being transparent today, which I hope I can always be transparent, let me tell you this. I have, in the last few years, lived in all three of these places of tension. And then I discovered what I've been trying to teach over the past few weeks. That when you find yourself reading a passage of scripture, and you experience tension, because it defines reason, because it doesn't gel with your own personal experience, it seems completely out of touch or is a passage on genocide. You don't just walk past it. You don't ignore it. You don't shrug it off. You lean into that tension. and You lean into the questions that come up as you read it. Because guys, I believe this. I, I truly do believe this. That it is in those questions that our faith has the most potential to grow now <laughs> i realize that seems impossible with a passage like this but that's why i didn't quit leaning i didn't quit reading so let's let's ask some questions okay the first question that we have to ask anytime we look at scripture and i want to remind you this this is a powerful question is Why is this here? A question to go alongside with it that helps to help us navigate that question is this. Why did this story get written down? And then finally, what can we learn from it when we take it into account with the rest of Scripture? Now, I didn't say that this would be easy. And if you came into church thinking that church would be easy, that faith would be easy, I hate to tell you, it's hard. Grace is easy. Faith is hard. So, what do we do about these verses? Here's the first thing we do. The Bible is not simply an instruction manual. Sometimes we pick up scripture and we sort of read it just as an instruction manual. And we say, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. It works with the Ten Commandments pretty well. It works with some of the teaching of Jesus pretty well. But there are a lot of passages like this, it does not work very well. So if someone says to you, well, the Bible is just an instruction manual, you just do what it says, then these passages exist to teach us when to commit genocide and how to commit it. That does not seem like a very good way to read the scriptures. So let's take that one and let's move that one off the table. I I don't think that any of us say, well, I'm thankful now that I found a way that I can commit genocide and when I should do it. We're not going to be very thankful about that. We don't want to be on that side of history. So let's look at the context. Let's look at what's happening here. Let's look at it in the breadth of all of Scripture, and let's see what comes out of this. I'm going to read these verses again. They're hard to read. I don't like them. Joshua 6:21. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed at the sword every living thing in it, men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, And donkeys. They even include all the animals to make sure it's clear that everybody is dead. Now, here's the thing about this passage, though. This passage isn't that unique. And it's not unique for a couple of reasons. The first way is very general this is the story of human history. We can replace the horns that are told that brought down the walls of Jericho, we can replace those horns with bombs that are capable of wiping out entire cities today. And we can be disturbed by that, but we don't have to look very far in current history to see this very same picture in Syria, in Rwanda, and in our very own history. Now the thing is, the people who wrote down these stories we're surrounded just like we are by a world like this. A world that is filled with war and destruction. Now when these stories were being transferred from this sort of oral tradition that people were telling about, this is what happened, this is what took place, this is how things happened. When they began to write them into written form, they were in exile. So, when you're writing these stories down, when you're taking them from an oral tradition where people are telling these stories over a fire, sharing the history with each other, to the place where somebody says, we should actually write these down so that future generations know about them, it's happening in their exile. So let me, let me make sure to open this up. This is the, we're going to get deep here, and, and I know you can follow me because we do this a lot because you are the most intelligent people I know, and I'm, I'm being serious about that. The people are in slavery in Egypt. We know that part of the story. They are delivered from their story. They go, Delivered from their slavery, they go to the promised land. When they get to the promised land, this is where most of us stop reading because if we're in the Read Your Bible Through a Year program, when we get to this part, we go, there's too much blood, there's too much violence, I'm out. Where's the Jesus part where he asks the kids to come to him instead of killing them? I want that part. So we miss this whole thing, but this is conquest. But when conquest is written down, is when people are in exile, which happens years after conquest. Okay? So after the people take all this land and all this country, they start building their empire, they build their kingdom, they have this wonderful, incredible kingdom, right? Well, actually, if you read the stories, the kingdom's a disaster, it's a mess. The kings don't do a good job leading. They give up on God over and over and over again. Finally, they become the ones who are conquered again. And they go back into slavery. In that place of exile, again out of their promised land, they say, How do we tell the story of our people? How do we p- tell people who we are and what our history is? We don't want to lose this about who we are. Well, let's tell all the stories. So they go back and they begin to say, in the beginning, God created. And they get to this, and they get to this, they get to this, and then they get here and they go, well, how how are we going to tell this story? And they write down this story. And they say, look, here is what happened. Now when they write this down, two things, two things are taking place. They lift up some national heroes because they're telling stories of, hey, this is when we claimed victory. This was when things were good. This is when things were happening. This is when, guys, th- we had victory. We weren't always slaves. We were not always going to be in exile. We had a time of conquest where we were victorious, and everybody went, yes! Because you need those stories. Those are the- everybody does that. Every culture throughout history has told those kinds of stories. But at the same time, Remember, these are people who are in slavery, who are in exile, that that way of doing things didn't work. So not only do these stories serve in a way of saying, hey, look, we were at one time victorious, we were not always going to be slaves. They also serve in a way to cause people to ask, is there a better way to live? These stories show, look, you you can have war, you can have conquest, but, but hold on, hold on, don't skip ahead. Your stories of conquest and war ended with your destruction in your exile. It didn't get you very far. And if we start to read the scripture and start to read the story in a way that people read it to say, what is going on, what took place, what can I learn from this, what they're learning from it, is sure, we might have been victorious, we might have had conquest, but it ended up with us right back in slavery. And so they read the story and they go, isn't there a better way to live? Shouldn't we do this in a better way? See, here's here's my opinion. I'm going to be very opinionated today because I have taken my time to study this and I have landed a place where I'm going to be opinionated about it. I put some work into this. Some tears, actually, and frustrations and a lot of work. I think that when they're telling their story, that they're trying to learn from it. They're trying to understand who they were. I don't think they're looking back to simply just say, this is how it's supposed to be. I think they want us to learn from what was happening. Is there a better way to live? Here's what's super cool. If we flip forward just a few books in the Old Testament, we find ourselves in a book called the book of Jonah. And this is where the alternative is found. This is where the better way to live is discovered. Now, it, when I say the book of Jonah, immediately, what do you think of? Whale. We instantly think of whale. I ha- I'm going to tell you this, and we're going to talk about this story next year as well. The story is not about the whale. The whale is not the main subject of the book of Jonah. This is what causes people to go, I can't believe that story because I can't believe someone got swallowed by a whale. We'll quit getting hung up on the whale that you forget to read the end of the story where the actual character who is the character of the story, Jonah, has something to teach us. And this is awesome when you see what Jonah has to teach us. So let me tell you, let me give you a little background on the book of Jonah. We won't read the whole thing. You should go back and read it, but let me just tell you what happens here, Okay. Jonah is a prophet. Jonah's role is looking at the people of God and saying, you got it wrong, try it again, do it this way, this is how you follow God, and this is what the prophets would do. They were preachers. They were sharing what needed to happen. They were were casting vision about the way the people of God should be. Well, all of a sudden, Jonah is told by God, okay, I want you to do this. I want you to go to to the people. I want you to cast a vision of repentance. I want them to turn from their ways. And he's like, I'm all in because that's what I'm supposed to do. And then he says, now I want you to do that in the place called Nineveh. Nineveh is not in Israel. Nineveh is not the Jewish people. Nineveh is the enemies of the Jews. Nineveh is where the enemy lives. And God says, I want you to go to them preach repentance so they'll turn from their wicked ways and Jonah says I don't want anything to do with that I see where you're taking this I see where you're trying to make this happen I'm going the other direction and I'm going to jump on a boat and I'm getting out of here and he gives up on his calling what he's supposed to be doing and God says no 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 so the storm comes and the people say it's this guy's fault because this guy isn't doing what God said he's supposed to do get up into the water Jonah and they throw him off the boat so where the whale shows up, the whale shows up, okay, the whale spits him out. And Jonah goes, Fine, okay, I get it. I get it. Fine. Okay. I will go to Nineveh. And he's thinking, look at the book and we can see this. He's thinking, I'm going to tell them, they're going to go, whatever, your God is weak. Don't you remember? You know, you ain't got nothing, whatever. We're bigger than you are, all that kind of stuff. And he's thinking, they're not going to repent. God's going to blow them up. And he's going to go, All right, yes, that's what is supposed to happen, because that's what happened in the book of Joshua. All right. And then Jonah ends up on this hilltop. The people repent. He's sitting there looking. I'm not going to give the punchline away because there's this cool story about a plant, the plant, anyways. Let me just tell you what happens at the very end of this thing. Jonah is distraught because they repent. His enemies repent. And all of a sudden, God's looking at him going, what are you mad about, bro? And Jonah's like, Because these are the enemies, you were supposed to destroy them. This isn't the way that I expected this to end. And I want you to hear what God says to Jonah. Listen what is recorded in Jonah 4.11. Jonah is infuriated. What is God waiting for? Kill these people. That's the kind of God that Jonah thought God was. Jonah 4.11. These are the words of God to him. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? The book of Jonah ends with a really awkward question. And when you first read it, you go, what is, and lots of animals, what is happening here? This is so confusing. And all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, hold on. Because did you notice anything? If you compare this to the book of Joshua, do you see the incredible parallel that is taking place in these two books? That in the book of Joshua, you have these people saying, we went in, we killed everybody. We killed the men, we killed the women, we killed the children. And just so it's clear That everything was dead, we killed all the animals as well. We say, I'm uncomfortable with that. And then we walk forward a little bit to the book of Jonah. And Jonah says, Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Listen to what God has to say to him. Jonah, don't you think that I care about everybody who lives in that city? Don't you think, don't you understand that I care about the men and the women and the children? Like they don't have it all right. they haven't figured it out. But look, and all the animals, too, I care about what's going on here. And so we're left with this tension all of a sudden in the Bible. So on the one hand, we have the story of Joshua where the enemies of the people of God are destroyed. And then on the other hand, we have the story of Jonah, where Jonah's strict tribalism is condemned. And here's what we do as modern readers of Scripture. Well, this isn't right. There can't be tension in the Bible. There can't be a question of which way is the right way. There can't be a question about what God is asking us to do here. Are we supposed to condone it? Are we supposed to condemn it? I don't know. What are we supposed to do with this? And then that's when we realize that's exactly what the Bible is doing. I I, I realize this this could be mind-blowing or difficult to understand, but there is an honest tension here taking place right in Scripture. tribalism and enemies and God is only for me and then there's this other part that goes what are you talking about God has been for all his creation for all time you are supposed to bless all people this is in the very beginning do I have time for this yes this is in the very beginning of the story of the Israelite people when Abraham is called God looks down and he says Abraham I am going to make you into a great nation. The world is going to be blessed by you. And all of a sudden it turns and he says, but those who curse you, I'm going to curse. And all of a sudden there's this tension between, okay, so you want me to be a great nation, but you want me to bless all people. Right in the midst of that is this Joshua and Jonah thing sort of taking place already. Is it about me or is it about everybody else? Is it about us conquering? Or is it about us blessing? Which one is it? And this is okay. This is tension that's right here. Is it condemned? Is it condoned? Are we supposed to? Or are we not? And we're supposed to join in to the tension that the Israelite people are experiencing. Because this isn't the end of the story. We stop too soon. We don't say, where is this going? So we live in that tension. Here's why we live in this tension, and this is what I discovered about this that changed everything for me. The tension that exists in Joshua and Jonah exists right in my very own heart. This is the tribal part of me. There is a part of me, there is a part of you that leads to division, distrust, and anger. And that part of us is called sin, and it leads to racism and violence in our world. And then there is another part of me that condemns that and says that is not the way that I'm supposed to live. In the story of Scripture, I'm actually seeing the tension that is alive in my very own heart if I am being honest with myself. I am so thankful that the people who wrote down Joshua were willing to honestly tell their story because I need to hear that. I need to see and understand that this is what my heart is capable of when I don't put it in check When I lean into the sin of division, distrust, and racism, and hatred, this is where it leads. There is no way around it. So I should lean into that tension, realize that's who I am, and then I realize this is not the end of the story. Because through the entire story, the Old Testament points to something else. It says something is coming, something that is going to put it all right, something that is going to give you the answer that you have been looking for to this tension the entire time, and that is Jesus. Listen to this story in Matthew 15 with all of that tension built in around this now. In Matthew 15, listen to this, we find Jesus with his Disciples. And he says this. It says this. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is, which is over here. It's, it's, it's not part of the Jewish communities, it's, it's a little further out. This is a Gentile community. And, and this, there's a reason for this. Listen what happens. A Canaanite woman. If we know the scriptures, because we've read them and want to read them, we would know that when as soon as we hear Canaanite, we should go, hold up, red flag, why is there a Canaanite woman showing up here? Because in the book of Joshua, the Canaanite woman, or Canaanite people, are the ones that Joshua attacked. The Canaanites were supposed to be destroyed from the face of the earth. They weren't supposed to exist. What is there a Canaanite woman doing? What is this, what's happening here? Is Matthew trying to teach us something as a Jew? Matthew was a good Jew. Is he trying to teach us something about Jesus and the Canaanites and what happened back then? Listen what happens. This is, this is incredible. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out loud, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And when people read this, this is one of those texts about Jesus, you go, that doesn't sound a lot like Jesus. That sounds, that doesn't, I mean, that's not who he, right? Doesn't he bring people to him? He draws people to him. He accepts all these sinners, and he looks at this Canaanite woman, and he says to her, he says, excuse me, hold on. I, I was only sent to Israel. Off with you. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And you're sort of like, this woman is arguing with Jesus about the kind of compassion he's supposed to have. Why is this here? What is happening here? All of a sudden, you can imagine his disciples, who are good Jewish people who knew the story in Scripture, and they have to decide, am I a condemner or am I a condoner? Am I going to go along with the violence that was perpetuated, or am I going to say there's something wrong, this isn't the way of God? And when he says this, you can almost hear them cheering. He says, I was only sent to Israel, and they're like, that's what I'm talking about, you know what I'm saying? Yep, yep, he got that one right. Finally... Then they go on and he says, no, 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 I'm not taking the bread that was meant for them and giving it to you. And you know, somebody's over there going, uh-huh, yeah, see, now he's okay. This is what he was supposed to teach, right? <laughs> and then just like what happens in Jonah, Jesus goes, hold on, let me set it straight. Yes, it is, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. I have no idea what happened with the disciples in this moment. And I'm taking a little bit of liberty in imagining it. Because I'm taking the whole of scripture into context here. That I think in that moment everyone goes, whoa. Jesus just set things straight. Jesus knew the stories that existed in the Old Testament. He knew the tension that was alive in those stories. He knows the tension that is alive in you and me. And in this very moment, he sets the record straight. And what Jesus does here has a massive impact on the early church. The early church had a right to hate and distrust everyone else. They were persecuted. They could have easily fought back. Instead, instead of fighting back, they tell these stories about Jesus. And their churches become filled with the very people who persecuted them. And this example that Jesus gives couldn't be any clearer than at the cross. Listen, I wrote this down. I just want to be really clear on this one. You see, rather than perpetuate the violence of his world, Jesus accepted it on himself. The the incredible happens on the cross. Jesus takes this violent, violent world upon himself. And in that moment, he condemned it peacefully. And as a result, the death of Jesus becomes a clear new way to live in the world. And just to be certain about it, his resurrection becomes the vindication And the lesson becomes so powerful, the early church, that they take this message from their homes, to their neighbors, to their enemies, to everyone around the world. And so as we have this tension within our hearts, the question becomes for us this simple question. Will we be tempted by the sin of tribalism and focus in on ourselves and our own prejudices? Or will we be changed when we turn our eyes upon Jesus? That is what I found in this. And that is why I am so glad that these stories exist. This is why I love a Bible that makes me frustrated and angry and is difficult. Because in these stories, I find tension that Jesus says, no, 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 let me solve that right here now. Let me set the record straight for you. We don't stop reading at where we're uncomfortable. We say, what does Jesus have to say? And it changes everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, that you show us what Jesus did on the cross, how he took the sin and violence in this world upon himself. God, he accepts that at the cross. He shows us that there is a different way to live in this world. And God, at that cross, we see him broken. But we see in his resurrection that there is a new way to live. In his name we pray. Amen.